Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Amen. That is quite an anthem to bring us into the Word and talking about the Gospel and talking about our salvation, which frees us from sin and death. So glad that you're here this morning. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Just three weeks left in the book of Hebrews. And so we are going to soak up every minute of it. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. And it starts in a very familiar place to us. It's something that we've heard time and again. You can read it with me silently as I read aloud. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted, those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that is God's word. Uh, We like to eat at my house. I should say this, we like to cook at my house, and we like to eat, and, and we divide that up by Janelle does most of the cooking, and then I do a lot of the eating, right? Your house is probably like that a little bit as well. But we, uh, we a couple of years ago, got a gadget that helps us in this pro- process. It is called the Instant Pot. Any Instant Pot fans out there? I think by the numbers of the ones that they've sold, there's a lot of you, there's a lot of us. But we, we bought this gadget, and it was supposed to, it was advertised as, you know, a slow cooker and pressure cooker and rice cooker and, and a do everything and do it in a better, more efficient, more effective way. And so uh, we got this thing, and it was guaranteed to change our life. And so we got it home, we opened the box, and we began to experiment with it. But honestly, at first, for us, it was a little bit underwhelming. For a product with instant in the name, the food sure didn't seem to come instantly. And then there was the fact that there was all kinds of buttons and knobs and things that you had to learn to use, and we weren't exactly, we weren't exactly flowing with it. And then there was the fact that this thing is huge. I mean, we've got a family of six, so we got the big one, and you put it on the counter, and it takes up all your counter space, and when you put it in the pantry, it's too big, it's too bulky, so then you never get... It was just a little bit underwhelming for us. And then Janelle said to herself, 
she said, I'm going to figure out how to use this. So she went online and YouTube and talked to people who had one, and she began to figure out what it was and how she could use it and how she could use it effectively. And all of a sudden, this thing that had been advertised as something that would change our life began to actually, you know, like, well, not change our life, but it changed the way we cooked and ate and, and that sort of thing. It became one of our most dependable products that we use in the kitchen on a weekly basis. It was amazing. Everything that the commercials advertised it to be. I think sometimes the same thing can be said about our faith. Salvation is billed as this transformational thing that is life-altering. But too many times when people profess Christ, they find that the reality of their faith is a little bit underwhelming. And the problem is not the promises of God. It is a misunderstanding about who God is and what it is to be a believer. And as a result, then, the worship that they experience is lackluster because expectations are not met. I think it's true that people are, by definition, worshiping creatures. We find something that we love and we give ourselves to it. It might be a hobby, it might be a cause, it might be a pursuit in life, it might be a relationship. And all of these things can be objects of our worship. But when we become Christians, the challenge is that the idea is that we shift the focus of our worship to that thing that we enjoy the most or that person or that cause that we enjoy the most and we put the object of our worship in Christ. And when we become Christians, it's not that we intellectually don't know that God is worthy of our praise. The problem is that we lack understanding and experiential awareness of that. And it's easy for our attention and our affection to remain where it was before. In our brains, we know that God is great and worthy, but somehow that doesn't energize our worship like our other passions. Uh, And one of the necessary uh, ingredients of salvation is that idea of repentance, that we would change our mind. And in this case, we need to change our mind about who God is, about what our connection to salvation is about how it affects us and how we respond to that. It's, it doesn't come naturally always, and sometimes we have to relearn what it is to be a worshiper of God, and the key is that we would understand God. But once we think rightly about God, we worship rightly in practice. Now, for 12 chapters, the book of Hebrews has been talking about some of these misunderstandings, especially that the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, had. They were prone to revert back to their old way of thinking. But I would suggest to you that that's not just a tendency for the Hebrew people, that's a tendency for us as well. All of us need to alter our thinking in order to come to God properly in worship. And so the writer of the Hebrews begins to set straight, and he has been doing for the entire book now. But in this passage, he reminds us of this truth, first of all, that we worship an unchanging God with an unchanging plan. And this has been his statement from the opening of the book, his message. If you think back all the way back to 
months ago when we started this in chapter 1, verse 1, he's talking about the realities of that old covenant and how they were shadows and copies of the new. And he starts the very book off by saying these words, chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Despite all the differing ways that God has spoken to his people, he says, the message has been consistent. And the reason for that is that Jesus has been consistent. And when Jesus came to earth, his plan was fully revealed. That all of a sudden it took shape and form and people began to see what maybe had been being prepared for many millennia. Jesus' mission never changed, but the Father revealed it with this unfolding and this increasing clarity. And we remember, because he's been talking about this, that in the Old Testament, the law is the standard of God's uh, that he gave to his people. It was this code of conduct. But his desire wasn't that they would simply conform their lives to acting in a particular way, but that their hearts were drawn to him. He didn't just want behavior modification. And the prophets repeat this over and over and over again. In fact, one notable instance is the prophet Jeremiah. This is probably the most well-known instance of this. He's talking about the meaning of the law, and in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, he says this. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Elsewhere, Ezekiel says that he wants to make their hearts not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. And Jeremiah says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And this is, this is the message of the book of Hebrews as well. In fact, the author of the Hebrews has quoted this instance from Jeremiah 31. He quoted it in chapter 8, verse 10. And he's reminding the people that the law's purpose is to point people to God's plan. And the prophets have been doing this continually, drawing people's attention to that deeper reality. And the deeper reality is that Jesus was coming and Jesus had always been God's plan. He was always going to be the bridge for people to approach God across the chasm that, of sin that separated them. Hebrews, as we talked about, presents Jesus as the greater answer to the old covenant systems. And the conclusion now is that our expression of worship must honor him rather than these systems that have foreshadowed his coming. Uh, the worship addressed, he's not just talking about their corporate gatherings because those in the old covenant weren't the same as we think about on a weekly basis, but he's talking about all of their life, their labor, and their cycles of cele celebration. It, worship even dictated their annual vacations as they went to and from the temple to worship God in Jerusalem. Everything in their life was filtered through their relationship with God. God had revealed himself to his people and given them these clear and consistent standards, but he was also working a deeper plan that had continuity from beginning to end. 
And at the heart of the plan is His Son. At the heart of His plan is His Son who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now think about those ancient people. This stood in sharp contrast to their neighbors, right? Their neighbors proclaimed gods who were capricious, who were arbitrary. These gods had expectations that were either unknown or they were constantly changing. How assuring that was for the people of God. How assuring that is for us. We worship an unchanging God. Access to Him does not change with His whims. He has no whims. He is absolutely the same always. His word is constant. His promises are constant. And His salvation is constant. Imagine it this way. Lots of people love to go hiking. Imagine you are hiking to a distant peak. Perhaps it's Mount McLaughlin. You spot the peak. You head toward it. You probably are carrying a map with you. It's been created by a map maker with a thorough knowledge of the entire territory. And in the journey along the way, sometimes you might lose sight of that mountain as you go up and down into hills and valleys, but the destination never changes. You consult the map. You trust its accuracy. And when you crest certain hills, you regain sight of the ultimate destination and you reconfirm your bearings. But you can be confident even when you don't see that mountaintop destination because you are confident in the map. You are confident in the maker. Jesus is that ultimate destination. Just like the distant peak, He is not moving. He's given us a map of His Word, and when it, whatever we face, He has faced it before. Now, because Jesus is always the same, the Hebrew author moves into the idea of proper response to Him, which is reliably consistent for us. But if we start with that faulty understanding, our response to Him is going to be inadequate. So the author revisits some territory that he's been before, looking at the Old Covenant and his, his inadequacy. Here's what he explains. He says that understanding worship is work of the heart. It's not hard work. And the writer wants people to see that in Christ, God's plan is fully and finally revealed. And yet, here he says, verse 9 that they were not to be led away. Look at it. They're not to be led away by these strange and diverse teachings. Well, we're not told what those teachings are. Uh, we don't really know what they were facing, but apparently what was happening was that some of the people were slipping back into that old way of thinking, that old covenant thinking. And I would say that we are prone to do the same, not to not to adhere ourselves to Old Testament standards, but to have some of these same principles in our lives. See, people misunderstood what to do with Old Covenant standards. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to offer us these three corrections. First, he says this, we need to prioritize grace and not the law. Look at what he says, verse 9. He says, our hearts are strengthened by grace. And that word grace is familiar to us, isn't it? If you've been around church for any length of time, it's a word that you heard, but just let me take a moment and give this definition. Grace is this. It is 
the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. Grace is that unmerited favor. It's something that we don't deserve. It's from God reflecting the character of God. But instead of God's grace, these people, and sometimes us, were relying on tradition. Now, there is nothing wrong with the Mosaic Law. When we open up our Old Testament and read it, we believe that it has benefit for us. But when Jesus came, he declared himself to be the fulfillment of, of the law. Paul, unpacking that reality, says that the benefit of the law was that it was a guardian for us until Christ came. Holding on to the law in place of Christ's fulfillment impairs our worship. It hinders us. If you are depending on, on a particular diet or calendar observances, or religious practices or festivals, those things, look at verse 9, do not benefit you spiritually. That's what he says. Instead, what happens is we as a people become blindly devoted, inevitably, to those things rather than to Christ. And some people commit themselves to following the law as an avenue to achieve righteousness through their own effort. Here's the problem. Depending on your own effort, human effort, is not consistent with the gospel. Now, it may look pious and devout on the outside. It may look the same as someone who is following Christ through the grace of the gospel on the outside. But following the law through your own effort is a different gospel. And Paul has told the Galatians that a different gospel is no gospel at all. Doesn't work. Not going to get you there. The gospel of grace has no room for reliance on the law. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says to his audience. Look at verse 10. He says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, now when I opened that up, I was like, what is he talking about? And then I kind of unpacked it and parsed it. Let's do it together here. Just for a second. He says, we, speaking of new covenant people, that's us. That, that was the Hebrew people of the day who had professed Christ. We have an altar. We have a place, an object, a mode of worship. You and I worship at the altar of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we? That's what we are. And he continues, we have an altar that those who served at the tent or the tabernacle, now he's speaking of the people who devoted themselves and dedicated themselves to the old covenant. We have an altar that those who served at the tent have no right to eat. Those who, those who have devoted themselves to the old covenant have no participation with Christ, he says. How dare someone call themselves a follower of Christ and then mix in human works with God's grace? There's a lot of religions that do that. We think of the Catholics that do that a lot of times. We think of the Mormons that do that a lot of times. But I would say to you that a lot of times as Christians, we are equally susceptible 
to trading the free grace of God for human effort. It just feels good. It just feels right to think that I have contributed. But it's wrong. You've probably known people, maybe you have fallen into that trap in your life. Let me tell you about Steve. Steve is a believer, a devout Christian man, but he's tortured by the fact that he might not be doing enough to earn God's favor. He came to me one day and he said, I'm not living in flagrant sin. I attend church every week. I do my devotions every day. Why can't I feel like God is happy with me? Why don't I feel like God is blessing me in the ways that I think he should bless me? Now, Steve knows the gospel. He knows that he cannot earn his own salvation, but he was trying to earn God's love on the backside of his salvation. He didn't understand the grace of Jesus. He didn't understand that the grace of God comes to us not because of our own effort, not because of our own merit, but because of God's loving kindness. Now, there's a second correction that the author of Hebrews gives. It's that we should prioritize Christ and not cleanness. In the Old Covenant, we know that people were required to make themselves ritually clean through washing and sacrifice. And they had to do that prior to entering into the presence of God. And the most notable ritual, we've talked about it from the book of Hebrews along the way, was this annual day of atonement. We find it in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse chapter 23. And this is what the author is remembering here in verse 11 that we're looking at this morning. The ceremony is this central rite to the Jewish calendar, and it's meant to draw people's attention to the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. The people were to purify themselves before coming to God, and if they didn't do that properly, there were serious consequences. Now, the writer of the Hebrews says, where people of the Old Covenant had to make themselves presentable before coming to God, he says that Jesus initiated the New Covenant by approaching humanity in their sinfulness and their unworthiness. Look at it in verses 11 and 12. On the Day of Atonement, the blood was offered for the people, and then the unclean carcass, look at what it says, was taken outside the camp. Got to get rid of it. It's unclean. And it was going to be burned there. Jesus, on the other, the other hand, met us outside the camp, outside the gate, and he suffered in our place. See, here's the truth. We no longer need to cleanse ourselves in order to come into God's presence. Instead, Jesus made himself unclean for us. As a human, he suffered indignity. He died a death that was despised by the people in order to bring us the cleansing power of his blood. Jesus bridges the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and he reverses the order of cleansing and worship. Jesus comes to us and leads us back to God. As a result, we are cleaned by him with his blood. Notice, though, that, the, that identifying with Jesus isn't always good for our reputation. 
verse 13, the writer of the Hebrews says this to the people. He says, let us then go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. To be a follower of Jesus often means that we might have to get our hands dirty. We don't make the message of Christ more palatable so that the people will come to us and receive it. God saves people not by glamorizing the message, but by dragging them off of the garbage heap of life. And we have to be okay following Him outside that camp and looking for sinners in need of forgiveness and of cleansing and speaking to them the truth of the gospel. Let me tell you about Sam. Sam was my neighbor many years ago, lived across the street from me. He was not a believer, but in my mind, God was clearly speaking to him. God was calling Sam to himself, and we started to have these discussions about spiritual things. It was amazing. He had all these questions, and I tried to point him to Scripture for the truth that he was looking for, and he seemed very, very close to accepting Christ. And so one day I just said, I'm just going to ask him, why haven't you done this yet? So when I posed that question, why haven't you come to Christ yet? He looked at me and he confessed that he had done things that were so awful. He wouldn't tell me what they were. I, I can't tell you. I would be humiliated to tell you. And furthermore, they were so awful that he couldn't imagine God accepting him. He couldn't imagine God forgiving him. And so I opened my Bible and I explained to him that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That God was most powerful when we were weakest. He saved people from their sin, not as a result of their goodness or their works. And anyone had the opportunity to repent and trust him. And when he finally heard that, You know, when he really heard it, not just with his ears, but in his heart, he turned to Christ faster than anyone I'd ever seen in my life. And he experienced the, the burden of that awful sin being removed from his guilty conscience. It was miraculous. There's a third correction that the author of the Hebrews brings to the people. He says, we must prioritize the eternal and not the temporal. Look at verse 14. And we've sung it, haven't we? As a staple of gospel music, if you are around when that genre was, you know, a little more popular, you say, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. But so many times, even as we sing that and we say that, we don't live it in reality. Here's what the author writes in verse 14. He says, here on earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. He reminds us of those words that he wrote back in chapter 11 when he's speaking about Abraham. He says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He paints this picture of this metropolis with all the benefits of a glorious city with architecture and services and opportunity. And Abraham's looking forward to that. The irony being that Abraham and his people were nomads. They, they wandered around the whole time. The people of Israel just walked around always longing for that promised homeland. And you and I are the same, aren't we? 
when we understand eternity, when we really understand eternity, we're going to feel like we're wandering around on this earth just waiting for the real thing, our true home. But then there are those times that we get caught up in the things of this world and the expression of our faith is hindered and it really dilutes and affects the peculiarity of our lives, of what they're supposed to be. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, we remember him, he says that this life is like a puff of vapor. And when we try and grab hold of it, it slips through our fingers. And we make that mistake that when we give priority to this world, instead of what comes after it, we haven't grasped the real. Even if we do that with noble intentions, which sometimes we can do. Sometimes we can just waste it away and spend our priority and our opportunity on things that don't matter. But sometimes we feel like we're really digging in and really doing things that matters here and now. I would tell you about my friend Jill. She, she professes Christ. And she's this incredibly sincere woman who wants to see the world changed for the better. You know the kind. To her, her faith in Christ is expressed in writing all the wrongs of this world and she crusades against gun violence and racial inequality and sexism and all kinds of injustices. The focus of her faith is finding and being a solution to the problems that exist in this world. And look, our faith should make a difference in this world. But for Jill, engagement in these causes is the ultimate expression of her faith. And I think when we make any of these mistakes, our worship is hampered. Instead of reveling in God's grace, we sweat it out depending on our own effort. Instead of delighting in God's presence, we're too busy cleaning up our act so that we can be ready for Him. Instead of our eternal home shaping our mission here, we spend time trying to squeeze every bit of meaning and sometimes every bit of enjoyment out of this one. And when we do so, worship can seem lackluster. It can seem unexciting. We would rather do something else than simply be in God's presence. So I ask you this question this morning. Does your faith seem impotent to you? You feel like you can't find traction in your spiritual growth? Your heart is cold. Maybe you're here this morning, but it's more out of duty than it is out of devotion. One of the reasons could be, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but one of the reasons could be that you've misunderstood God's character and His work in salvation. I'm not necessarily saying you're not saved, but like the example of the instant pot at the beginning, you don't really understand how your faith integrates into life. The gospel is, is powerful and life-changing in its own right. But if we don't understand it, it's always going to feel like it doesn't deliver on its promise. You and I can't experience the power and the freedom that comes through Christ unless we rightly understand salvation 
And once we understand salvation, that change is going to be uncontainable in our lives. It's going to spill over and affect every area. It's not going to be able to be controlled. In fact, I, I think the author of the Hebrews now shifts his focus to that idea. He says that worship begins internally, but then it moves outward. He's coming to a conclusion in this passage, verse 15 and 16, and he urges the people to express their worship in two ways. And it's all based on that proper understanding that he's just addressed. First, verse 15. He urges them to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now notice, continually. The expression is not limited to a weekend worship gathering. The time we spend together on Sunday morning is that overflow of your personal worship. It's, it's the leftovers. It's, it's the stuff that you couldn't fit in to Monday through Friday. And so you come here bursting with excitement to be together and have an opportunity to express those things. And I would just suggest to you, maybe, that if for you worship gatherings are a drag, it might be a you problem. It might have nothing to do with what's going on on this platform. Notice also that he says that we're to offer a sacrifice of praise, continually offering a sacrifice of praise. Worship is something that would cost us something. It's not convenient. It's not incidental to our lives. It's the center focus. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us finances. It might, might cost us opportunity to pursue our hobbies or relationships. It might cost us that precious me time that we love, but ultimately our aim is to acknowledge his name. Our worship is to be focused on knowing and proclaiming him. It doesn't have to satisfy my preferences to be effective. What matters is that we accurately proclaim God's character and that we engage with him. Now the second expression of faith according to the author here, is doing good and share with others what you have. Christian, you and I are to be generous people, not, not because it's a good work, but because we reflect God in that He is the giver of all good gifts, especially His Son, Jesus Christ. You and I are called to be moral and righteous and ethical people because we are adopted children of the Father. Not because it makes us better, gives us better standing, but because we are reflecting the character of our Father. He's perfectly holy, and we commit ourselves to pursue holiness, which enhances our fellowship and our intimacy with Him. And let me tell you, I've been there every bit as much as you or more. We're tempted to skip straight down to the bottom of the passage. We're, we're tempted to go straight to the outward expressions of our worship because they're easy things to work toward. We could put them on a checklist. Okay, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. But when we try and accomplish these things apart from a knowledge and existing in the presence of God, it all falls flat. Instead, those outward expressions of faith are the natural result of that inner reality. 
inwardly we experience transformation. Inwardly we experience the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we, when we join with Him, we understand, like the song says, that wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin, taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. And just like the song, it builds in us so that we begin to worship Him and declare that grace. And we might find ourselves singing, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than a mountain, sparkling like a fountain. All-sufficient grace for even me. And the men go, and even me. Right? Broader than the scope of my transgression. Greater far than all my sin and shame. And then we join together and we say, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise His name. And I know I fall flat because I'm a pragmatist. Maybe you're a pragmatist too. Sometimes I don't want to think deeply about all the things that I'm experiencing. I just want to do the things that I need to do. And I want to do the right things. And that might seem like an easier way to go. Just give me the checklist. Give me the answers to the test. I'm going to dutifully perform them. I'm going to do the right things. And I'm going to get on with my life. But I think as this passage makes clear... We need to think rightly about God and then we will worship rightly in practice. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we proclaim that it is a great privilege to hear from you. Knowing that as we open up Scripture, We can't help but hear your words and hear your purposes for our lives. Father, I pray that for those who are believers here this morning, that you would reignite the fire that was the passion of our first love when we came to you. Reignite it by helping us understand the depths of our sin, the greatness of your salvation, and the opportunities to dwell in your presence. Father, maybe there would be those here this morning who hear these words and they've never understood them in this way and they've, maybe they've even been around the church for the entirety of their lives, but it's been something that has been outward rather than inward. Father, would your spirit see fit to save them this morning? If you are drawing them to yourself, would you allow your spirit to convict them of their sin and help them to understand that the only solution is to cry out to the name of Jesus for salvation? Father, I pray that you would use this time powerfully in our lives and as we respond to it, not just in the closing song, but as we walk out the doors, that our response would be something that would be dynamic in our lives, that would energize and excite us 
and spark us to life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.